HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, and that's the noise you hear outside because we've got a really raucous party going on. So, um, you know, come down, join the fun if you're in the area. Um, my guest today is in the studio. Her name is Elizabeth Reut. She is the author of Bottle Mania, How Water Went on Sale and Why We Bought It. Garbage Land on the Secret Trail of Trash, and The Tapir's Morning Bath, Solving the Mysteries of the Tropical Rainforest. Her writing on science and the environment has appeared in Harper's, National Geographic, Outside, The New York Times Magazine, and other national publications, including Fern, which is the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which if you don't subs- uh, don't subscribe to that newsletter, I strongly urge you to do so. Fern is often uh, the arm of reporting that is then translated into major media outlets such as MSNBC. ABC, etc. So um, they're frequently the people who break stories such as the one we're going to discuss today um, with Elizabeth. And thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, So you recently just published a lengthy article which was in The Nation and then was picked up by Fern, I guess. Or how does that work? It started with Fern. Um, They supported me while writing the story. And so I did a feature story for The Nation, and then I did a thousand-word version that went up on NBC.com and then was picked up by various blogs and other websites. Yeah, so it's a it's a beautiful thing what Fern is doing, i got to say, just to give them another plug. Um, I really <laughs> As a writer, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but also as a consumer, it's like, you know, it's one of those news outlets that um, gets really great writers, and the stuff actually does get out into the mainstream media, which often does not uh, happen. So um, in this article, which you wrote uh, it, for The Nation and then for Fern, um, you were we're talking about the agri- the impact on agriculture from the use of hydraulic fracturing, otherwise known as fracking, for natural gas. In this particular instance, because it's a very hot topic here in New York, I've been following this closely. But in this instance, you were covering a farm in North Dakota. So what got you interested in that story and, and how did you find out about it? 
I uh, had been traveling around in the Catskills, seeing all this pro-fracking, anti-fracking signs, talking to farmers about um, what might happen. Some of them wanted this to happen. Some of them were desperate to sell their uh, to sell leases to gas companies. And I started hearing about problems in Pennsylvania with ranchers and farmers and their animals who were in heavily fracked areas, sick animals. I had trouble finding people who would talk to me. Um, but I spoke to a veterinarian and her partner who were doing some of these investigations. And they, Would that be Michelle Bamberger? Yes. Yeah. And her husband, Robert Oswald. And they put me on to this farmer in North Dakota who was very, very happy and eager to talk to me about the problems she had with her cattle. Well, you mentioned that people are not speaking out about the health issues for their animals. And you mentioned a non-disclosure agreement that some of them signed. Is that a non-disclosure agreement with who? With the, with the uh, energy, company. energy company? There's a, a myriad reason of reasons why farmers don't want to talk. That is astonishing, Elizabeth. Let, let, let's stop for just one <laughs> second and digest that piece okay. of information. They are signing without knowing what they're signing in a way. You have to under... I mean, right? Do no, no, no. The NDAs, the NDAs come after a farmer or a landowner owner has had a complaint. Right. They've leased uh, their subsurface rights. Something's gone wrong. They have complained to the energy company and they hire a lawyer and then the energy company wants to settle out of court. And so they settle a chunk of money on these landowners or farmers, whatever. Um, And part of the agreement is that you won't disclose any of what went down in in the how much course. money are we talking about that they're settling with? I think tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. I hope it's hundreds of thousands because tens of thousands doesn't really speak to the long term. Well, they're not allowed to say outlook. what they settled for, so I, I can't speak oh, to it. See, right, of course yeah. not. Yeah, there's yeah. no evidence for that. But there's other reasons they don't want to talk about problems on their ranches, and it's, I think it's really important. Um, some of them are getting royalties from these companies, sure. um, so they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Uh, and then there's this whole thing about herd reputation, that it takes many, many years to develop a reputation for the animals that you're selling into the market. And farmers don't want to go around saying, yeah, I think my cattle are tainted. You know, they're walking around funny. Um, they're acting weird. Um, I'm scared to eat them, but I'm selling them, and they're on the supermarket shelf. So farmers are are very wary about impugning their own product, um, and they don't want to be sued by energy companies for um, for these claims they're making against them. And they have it's very hard to cause uh, to prove cause and effect that your fracking fluid caused my animals to die of. X, Y, or Z. So there's a lot of reasons farmers don't speak out. How is it possible? How is it not possible to do cause and effect? I mean, if your herd is healthy Mm -hmm. and people, I guess they're not testing their soil before the fracking companies come in. So maybe that's a cautionary tale to everyone who's in the farming industry. It's like before you sell your lease, get your soil and groundwater tested. Yeah, it's, it's nice to say test your soil, but test it for what? So you need to know what these energy companies are using, what they're putting down into down these wells and might coming up what is down in the devonian era of shale you know what are the heavy metals and radioactive material that could be coming up so you have to do an incredibly broad spectrum of tests before on your soil and then is it moving from the soil into your pasture are you going to test your grass are you going to test uh the, the corn um that you or whatever you feed your cows the silage um and then it's the water and then it's the air and you have to do all of this before fracking starts <laughs> Wow. And it's, of course, very expensive. Hugely expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to quote from your article here. In 2011, oil companies in North Dakota reported more than 1,000 accidental releases of oil, drilling, wastewater, or other fluids, with many more releases likely un- unreported. Between 2008 and 2011, drilling companies in Pennsylvania reported 2,392 violations of law, 
that posed a direct threat to the environment and safety of communities. Can you comment on what, if any, legislative steps have been taken to impose further regulation (laughs) of energy companies to reduce the number of these incidents? I mean, you would think that a state government would go nuts over these incidents. Not in North Dakota. North Dakota is very industry-friendly. The energy industry has been great for the economy of North Dakota. They have the lowest unemployment rate in the country. Pennsylvania, very friendly toward the energy industry also. Um, They don't have enough boots on the ground. They don't have enough inspectors. They're not rigorously enforcing the laws. Um, Pennsylvania, I think, is moving toward tightening many of of these environmental laws um, and regulations. So I think that things are going to be marginally better uh, going going forward than they've been in the sort of wild and lawless past, you know, four to six years. Well, fracking, according to an interview I did quite a few years ago with um, the head of the the um, uh, New York State Oil and Gas Authority. Dennis, I can't remember his last name, unfortunately. I should have listened back to the radio uh, show. But um, you can, if you want to go back into the archives, listen to one of my first shows. And that was with Ramsey Duncan from the um, Catskill Mountain Keeper and this guy, Dennis, whatever his name was, (laughs) from the Oil and Gas um, Authority. And, I mean, he he just bowled over my guest, my other guest. He just literally, um, you know, completely laid waste to him. And um, one of the things (laughs) that he pointed out in this, I mean, he was so well prepared. He was just Mr. Talking Points. It was great, yeah. He was really impressive, um, you know, if you like that kind of thing. And um, But one of the things he said is that fracking has been around for 25 years and nobody really, you know, why is it such a big deal now? And it's a very safe form of, you know, energy uh, development and blah, blah, blah. So when you talk about the lawless and wild west, is it because it was not so widespread in the past and that it's in the last 10 or 15 years really picked up steam or? I think that it's, a, it's picked up speed so quickly, but I don't, was he saying that 25 years ago we were doing um, slick water, deep, horizontal, um, high volume hydrofracking? That seemed to be, well, perhaps I'm not making the, he was not making that distinction. Yeah, they, they do that a lot. They, they're talking about fairly conventional vertical wells that don't go more than a mile deep into the shale, then right. turn 90 degrees and move thousands of feet horizontally. And they're not injected with um, all these chemicals at high pressure, millions of gallons of water. Millions of gallons of water and about somewhere between 126 and 132 chemicals, which they are not by law obliged to disclose. Um, thanks to the Dick Cheney loopholes that were developed, what I guess about seven years ago now. Right, but states like Colorado and Texas are um, are now requiring these companies to disclose the list of chemicals, but they don't have to do it before they start fracking, and so that makes it hard for property owners to do these base the baseline testing. Um, number one and number two is that they can still claim. Um, that many of these chemicals are trade secrets. So they, they're revealing some of them, the more common ones, but uh, someone did an analysis and found that about a fifth of the chemicals they use are, can, are still listed as secrets. Wow, that's amazing. And, of course, they're highly toxic in most cases. I mean, we're speculating on that, but I, I think it's safe to say that, um, well, let's go back to the case that you wrote about jo- uh, uh, Jackie. Jackie Shilke. Now, did, was there any kind of health assessment done in advance of the fracking near her farm? She runs a dairy farm. Give her a little background. Oh, beef. On, she, she raises beef black, black right, Angus sorry. beef, and she, she'd been doing it for 10 years. She owns 160 acres, and she grew up cattle ranching. Um, she's kind of a nutrition fanatic with her cattle. She babies them. She watches every calorie they take. Um, 
And uh, there's about 32 different uh, oil and gas rigs within three miles of her property. She had tested her water before. She didn't have problems that she noticed until a rig went up half a mile from her property line, and there were problems in drilling this well. And she had tested her water beforehand because her cattle were drinking from it. And so she was able to track some of the changes in the chemicals in her water. And it was after she had passed out in her barn and um, she had a rash that didn't heal for years. It's still not healed. Um, She had neurological problems. That's when she started to bring in certified environmental consultants to test her to do more tests of her water and of her air, and she had her blood tested, and they found um, elevated levels in her blood of um, acetone, arsenic, and germanium. In her water, she had elevated levels of sulfates, chromium, chloride, and strontium. And in her air, strontium she, is radioactive. One form of it, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, there's a couple different versions of strontium. Okay. Um, and in the air, uh, benzene, methane, chloroform, butane, propane, toluene, and xylene, which are the kinds of things that come... Those are VOCs, right? Yeah. yeah. They're, and they're linked with oil and gas production. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the energy companies say, well, methane is a naturally occurring phenomenon, so what's the problem with that? And I mean, I've heard a lot of these arguments, like, what are you worried about? It's just methane. It already exists. She wouldn't worry, probably, if she wasn't so sick and unable to take care of her animals, and if her... Uh, Two or three of her own dogs, her you know, her pets died, um, and she has a dozen cats on the place to keep rats down, and sure. they were just falling over dead and staggering. And I visited, and they all held their heads at these really weird, creepy angles, and had running eyes and noses. And then her cattle. This is the the thing. This is how she makes her living. Five cows have died so far. Um, the the they were losing sixty to eighty pounds a week. The mothers quit producing milk for the calves. Um, five cows lost half of their tails, um, and one very expensive bull she had to to put down. And then they looked at its lungs, and it, they were um, uh, they were what is the verb? Abscessed. <laughs> they she, it had Diseased. pneumonia. It had they were just filled with evidence of pneumonia, and the liver was filled with tunnels. And but no vets could say, well, this is because of that. And there, there's thousands of trucks going by all the time, so there's so much dust in the air. So these animals are dying of dust pneumonia. That's common in heavily fracked areas. Um, so that is a, a big problem. Amazing. I mean, why anyone? I, so <clears throat> let's just uh, travel for one second in the direction of what the farm community is saying about this in the wake of this information. Now, you said that they don't like to talk about this, and okay, granted, but surely there is a segment of the farming community that is seeing some of these reports and thinking, okay, maybe I don't want to get those royalties. And, you know, those royalties can be very, very substantial. I mean, yeah. I totally get that. You can make millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, you literally. can quit farming. Yeah, you can quit farming and just walk away with a lot of money in your pocket right. from these leases. So, so the people who are talking about it are people who have, have been substantially harmed. Um, but the more pe- most people who are talking about it to me are people in New York State who are, aren't seeing this level of horizontal hydrofracking now, but are terrified that it's coming. And even if it doesn't come exactly to their property or neighborhood, they are worried about the perception, not necessarily the reality, because they're not going to ever lease their their gas rights. But they're worried that people will think that the air is contaminated, because of course, air pollution doesn't know boundaries, and neither does uh, water pollution. So they're worried that their pristine farm will be tainted by the reputation of these other places. 
Well, I think you mentioned at the end of the article, and we're going to take a break in just a second, but um, you mentioned at the end of the article that possibly in New York State, Sullivan County was going to be fracked. Was that you, or did I read that somewhere else? You've probably read it many places. Three, the, the Sacrifice Counties on, yeah. in the Southern Tier, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is Sullivan County one of the... Uh, I would it's Tioga. I feel like I thought it was Sullivan County, but I could easily be wrong. I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff about this, because maybe I read that on the Catskill Mountain Keeper site. Isn't Sullivan partly in the within the watershed for the city, which would be off limits? I would have thought so. Broome County, Tioga, someone who's listening might want to call in and correct us. Three or yeah. four counties in the southern tier will be the first to go if Cuomo lifts the moratorium. Right, absolutely, which is a terrifying thought. I, you know, so far he's managed to cope, hold the uh, energy companies at bay, but it's it's a it's a crapshoot how long he's going to be able to hold them off. Um, we'll be right back in about thirty seconds. We're going to have a quick sponsor drop. My guest is Elizabeth Roy, a journalist who is following the fracking story. This is straight no chaser and we'll be back in just a moment with more information about fracking and animal health the international culinary center is a proud sponsor of the heritage radio network.org the icc with locations in new york and california provide cutting-edge education to future chefs restaurateurs and wine professionals we're proud to claim dan barber bobby flay and david chang among our honored alumni This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. We all know what a foodie is, but what's foodiness? Foodiness is turning us into those chubby, slushy, slurping, lounge chair-bound morons in Wally, plugged in, pumped full of sugar, and brain dead. Chef Erica Wides is here to fight against foodiness. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. Let's get real. Rediscover real food every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. And my guest today in the studio is Elizabeth Wright. And we're talking about uh, hydrofracking um, or hydraulic fracturing in uh, agricultural land um, based on an article that Elizabeth wrote recently for The Nation magazine, which was uh, concurrently published with FERN, which is the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Sorry, folks. (laughs) So... um, we were talking about uh, fracking, and one of the, and again, to quote from your um, from your article, uh, fractivists are passing around a food pyramid chart that depicts chemicals moving from plants into animals, from animals into people, and from people into zombies. But we know that the USDA and the FSIS, which is the Food Safety Inspection Service, have no means of inspecting these chemicals or toxic residues or looking for them in any of the food that comes through um, their inspection services. So how how are humans going to be protecting themselves, <laughs> given that this is what's happening and given that farmers don't always want to cop to the fact that they might be tainted? Right. We as individuals can't do much to protect ourselves from these chemicals, and we would think that the government would. But um, as I said in the piece, the USDA, these the inspectors at um, slaughterhouses are mostly looking for the residue of pesticides and p- they're looking for pathogens and they do a, a gross picture of these organs. They're not doing microscopic work. And so, um, as I say in the piece, animals that die on the farm because of this accidental or incidental exposure to fracking chemicals, they don't make it into the food system. Right. They're going to a rendering plant and will be made into pet food and fertilizers. <laughs> Cosmetics, um, right? Film. Yeah, <laughs> but animals that don't die on the farm, but might have been in the herd, 
um, and are exposed to the same chemicals but haven't succumbed to them are moving into the slaughterhouses and they're not being checked for residues. And veterinarians don't know the hold times for many of these chemicals. Um, they might clear from the animals. Um, I, I don't want to be alarmist. I'm not saying that if you eat a cow that grew up um, within half a mile of a drilling and fracking site um, that you're going to get sick and die from some VOCs in the meat. Actually, VOCs don't accumulate in meat. Um, right. Or, you know, radioactive material or heavy metals, whatever. It's just there are so many unknowns, and that's what my piece stresses. That there's industry secrecy, and then there's the lack of funding for these long-term peer-reviewed studies to show the, the fate and transport of chemicals through all these different pathways, the soil, the air, the water, Different kinds of crops take up different chemicals. Do they stay in the plants and animals we eat, or are they cleared? Um, if they don't clear, are they coming to us at levels that will harm us, and right. when? Or do they go back into the soil and become further concentrated? There's mm-hmm. another question to ask. You know, I mean, right. I'm going to have to find some good scientists to good luck. Uh, geek out on this. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because the government isn't funding these scientists. I actually, um, reporting the story, did speak to two people at Yale who are starting studies. They're in their initial stages. They are looking at how some of these chemicals move through some of these pathways. It's just an enormous project, and it's going to take a long time, and it's very expensive. And then there's a group in southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, Southwest Pennsylvania Environmental Health Project, where they're collecting the stories of people who believe that they've been affected by drilling and fracking operations. These are the guys who turn on their hose and and light a match, and the water spurts out as flames and stuff like that, right? Those kinds of stories? Um, Those are like the classic stories. They're collecting about health stories. They're yeah. not collecting um, fire in my sink stories. They're, they <laughs> want to know if you're vomiting or if, like Jackie Shilke, you have blood in your urine or yeah. if you have rashes that haven't healed ever since mm. your water went bad. Mm. Or your pets have died. Right. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that I think, I know you said that it wasn't really your field of expertise, but I think it's worth exploring is the impact on the future value of land uh, if you ha- are near fracking or have uh, leased fracking rights onto your land. And then also the whether or not insurance companies will insure for problems that might be associated with fracking. And I would think that those two things would be a tremendous disincentive. Can you talk a little bit about how much that what kind of impact that might have or whether you see that there are people sort of taking note of that. And the- yeah, um, at, fractivists in New York State are looking at this because the Farm Bureau in New York State has a preferred insurer, and that's Nationwide Mutual. But Nationwide has come out and said that we will not offer insurance to farmers who have hydrofracking on their property. Um, and there are there's a bank, the biggest agricultural lender in the nation, Rabobank. This was told to me, it's been difficult to confirm, but they haven't refuted it since I alleged this in print, that they won't um, make loans to people who, who have uh, leases on their property. Um, so there's all this interesting stuff happening. If you... There are farmers who are leaving the Marcellus Shale area because they're worried and they're looking for land in other places, but those land prices are going up because they're off the shale. They're supposedly clean. Um, And then there are um, land values going down because the land might be considered contaminated. Um, So there's a lot of shifting going around, and I quote someone in the story who says that this, either way it's not good for the future of of local farming and sustainable farming to have this much volatility in the market and and people being forced off their land. It's it's hard to move a ranching operation to find new land. And Jackie Schilke was desperately trying to move her 160-acre operation to an area that's not, not bound to be fracked. Yeah, and she's, I mean, 160 acres is not easy to sell when you're... Um, 
right surrounded, the, by. surrounded by uh, drilling rigs. Right. Yeah. I mean, how could she ever find land that is going to be equivalent in value? She'll have to do with either much less or equally sort of vulnerable. I suppose she could send her, her, sell her land to someone who will never live there because she, the subsurface rights will go with it. So it's valuable for fracking. Um, right. <laughs> but... Uh, but no one would want to live there after she's gone public talking about how bad the air and water are. Yeah, absolutely. No kidding. I mean, (laughs) terrifying. Um, One other thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, when people sell uh, the lease to their land, you're not just, uh, there's more to it than just the fracking pad, the the drilling pad. It's, It's the roads that come in. It's the, you know, all the infrastructure that goes along with it, which which ends up eating up a lot more of cropland than you might initially think as right. as somebody who's, you know, leasing out 10 acres to, uh, you know, to a drilling rig. Can you talk a little bit about what that, the impact of that on future of agriculture, on, uh, you know, whether or not we're going to have enough, you know, what that's going to say for the future as we lose more agricultural land to development and more to fracking? Like, right. what is that going to mean? Right. As uh, farmers are the la- largest um, private landholders in the nation, and so they are disproportionately approached by oil and gas companies to for these deals. Um, and they know that there'll be a five or six or seven acre well pad put on the property, but they have to build an access road to get to this well pad. So that takes land out of production. Um, and then there's a pipeline. Uh, the, the operation has to be hooked up through gathering lines that go to bigger pipelines. And so forests are cleared for that. Um, the Nature Conservancy did a study in Pennsylvania and found that for every well pad in place, um, 30 acres of forest or fields or, you know, uh, natural habitat were fragmented. And so you've got these effects that are, um, I don't know if they're nonlinear, but they're the sort of ripple effects that go out with the the noise, the roads, the fragmentation, the The loss of diversity, the loss of ecosystem services, and the dust is a huge issue. I would imagine. During the development of the well pad and the early production stages it calms down after these things are done and this is a point that i have to make um, in defense of the industry is that the initial impacts are temporary the bright lights the the racket that can go on for months and months and months as they do all these wells you can put up to 12 wells on on one of these pads um, and it is very disruptive and a lot of people move away while that's happening and then come back (laughs) once the the derrick is down and but they've made Whatever. so much money that it doesn't matter. Well, I don't know. I've heard some sad stories about people spending all their royalty money on uh, co-pays for the doctor, driving around to doc. You know, they live in rural areas, and they drive trucks around to get to the doctors or bring the kids to the hotel where they live, and then to school, and then to basketball, and then the veterinary bill. So many people's little, you know, their little nest egg has been eaten away by expenses incurred because of drilling and fracking operations. That is truly tragic. Yeah. So... Let's talk about the win winning part of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what the industry likes to talk about. Um, you know, fracking does create a lot of jobs, mm-hmm. right? Um, I read one report from, uh, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has been very pro-fracking. Um, and they were talking about how many thousands of tens of thousands of jobs that are being developed by fracking. Do you have any sense of how long those jobs will last and or is it going to be like a boom and bust kind of a thing where five years after you've put in your you know all your new services and built this whole new economy in a, in a rural town that was going bust already um 
you know, does it does it last or does it just like they just fold up shop and move away and then you're well, left with all this stuff? I've read about, I'm not an expert on this this part of it, but a lot of the jobs do move on. I've talked to people who have been brought in to, to lay pipeline. They're heavy equipment operators and when this job is over, they're, they wait for the next one or they go back to Oklahoma, Arkansas and wait. Um, North Dakota has been booming for a long time now uh, in the back and shale area and uh, it's really taken a toll on communities there. It's been great for a lot of people, and you know, people sell more gas, and the diners are full, and the hotels yeah, exactly. are full. But it's been a strain on schools. Crime levels have gone up, housing rates have gone up, and oh, there's homeless pe- people who can't afford housing, and so there's strains on social services, and uh, there's pros and cons. Is there any? Has there been any sort of aggregation of reports on on the impact, the long, or even like the five year impact on a rural community of, of this kind of expansion and and booming kind of um, phenomenon? Um, probably, I don't know. Sorry, oh, that's okay. I mean, but that's something to. I mean, for me, that's something to look into and like wonder about because yeah. I mean, they do. I mean, the oil and gas industry is very. I mean, when I had that guy on a few years ago, he was very clear about how great it was. You know, they pay enormous amounts of taxes into the local town, you know, tax uh, base, and he said, "Oh, we, we delivered a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar check." And I'm thinking to myself, "That's really not that much money, mm-hmm. <laughs> considering how much money you're making." Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long term, I mean, he was saying that this is like, it's great for a community that's having a hard time where, you know, the old agricultural ways are not really working and they're not hooked up to a distribution pipeline. And we all know that when, in terms of like sustainable and local agriculture, the biggest issue is the infrastructure mm-hmm. where farmers don't have any method to both aggregate their produce or their or their product right. and then also Get just to ship it out to market. Yeah. So, um, so in the face of that, a lot of them are very happy, obviously, to sell off their leases and make some money. And I, you know, we can all understand that. But I guess... The thing that interests me is like, you know, even if that were to last, I mean, he was the oil and gas guy was saying, this is a 25, we have wells that are 25 years old. But those jobs aren't 25 year old jobs. (laughs) They aren't 25 years old. Those things, wells pretty much run themselves. I mean, I I don't know exactly, but there's a, there's a frenzy of activity for the first few months. And then the thing is producing gas and it's visited and, you know, tanks have to be emptied and monitored and things like that. But uh, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a curve there and it, it declines swiftly. Very interesting. Well, um, Elizabeth, we have reached that point where we have to both promote you <laughs> and what you do and, um, and then promote my next show. So um, tell us a little bit about how people can find this article if they want to or learn more about what you're doing or oh, you sure. know, anything um, you want to do. Anything well, you can you read both. You can read uh, the, the, the story was on the cover of The Nation in December. It's still online, thenation.com. Uh, my last name is Reut, R-O-Y-T-E. I have my own website where I link to a lot of my recent journalism, and that's Reut.com um, slash blog, because um, I blog about these issues. And I have a story about um, fracking in Amish country now in western Pennsylvania that's out at On Earth uh, magazine, onearth.org. You can find that. It's called Fracking the Amish. Oh, my God. I hate <laughs> to even think of that. That's a whole other subject. Oh, how sad. Well, we'll come back and visit that. Okay. <laughs> um, especially as things move forward in terms of New York State and what's happening here. I mean, it's getting closer and closer to sort of like there were big rallies all this past week in Albany. Um, there's, you know, a lot of motion right now in terms of uh, these 
you know, the health impact assessment, which sort of didn't really happen, but sort of happened. And they're going ahead with stuff like that when they really shouldn't be and so forth and so on. So there's, I mean, people should really be tuned into what's happening in New York state right now, because it is definitely a very crucial period in the whole sort of comment, public comment process. And we all have the right to make a voice heard in Albany, whether or not it will be listened to is another matter. Um, Next week, my friends, uh, my guest will be Heather Miller from Orion magazine. She's going to give us the update on nanotechnology, um, something which has been around for a while, but which is uh, gathering steam even as we speak and swiftly being moved into our food system for better or worse. And that's what we'll find out about from her. So um, stay with us for next week. And thanks for tuning in today. And many thanks to my sponsors. And thank you, Elizabeth, for joining me in the studio. This has been Straight No Chaser. We'll see you next week, folks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.